Amen. You can have a seat. It's good to see you, Mars Hill. Kids, you can be dismissed to your classes. Uh, that last song is just gospel truth, um, singing our identity in Christ, who we are and what he's done for us and saying, yes, I am. That is who I am. I hope as we're working through gospel primer during the month of January, you're hearing that over and over again. We're trying to work through that book and the meditations in that book on God's love towards us in Christ Jesus. Uh, hearing it, preach to ourselves, preaching it to ourselves, meditating on it. Uh, I hope that it's been beneficial to you and that you'll consider maybe coming to that seminar we're doing in February to learn a little bit more about how we can preach the gospel to ourselves every day and use the habits of grace that God has, has provided to us. This morning we're continuing our, act, our study of Acts. We're, we're back in Acts and we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 to 7 this morning. And just as a reminder on the book of Acts, we uh, said from the beginning that the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, is all about what Jesus did, what he accomplished in his life and ministry here on earth. And then Luke tells us that the book of Acts is all about what Jesus continues to do through gospel-transformed believers through his church, what he continues to do even up to this day through those who trust and follow him. And what we've seen up to this point is the church is growing, it's multiplying, it's expanding, and, and it's doing it exponentially. It's unbelievable how, how much it's happening, how fast it's growing. But today, we come to a problem. In fact, growth is the, how, how the, the text starts. The disciples are increasing, and growth is how the text ends. The gospel is increasing, and disciples are multiplying, but sandwiched in between is a problem. The problem is the rapid growth of the church. And how will the apostles and how will the church respond? Will they be derailed and distracted by debate? Will they be derailed because... There are some who try to take authority and power and try to do everything. Will they be derailed? Will the gospel be derailed and disciple-making be derailed because others allow them to do everything? Or will they respond to the wisdom of God, to the leading of God, to share ministry and to invite others in and, and to expand gospel influence? And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see first the context and the complaint that arose, the problem. And then we're going to see the wise solution that the apostles put forward, the wisdom that they put forward, and the wisdom, where that wisdom comes from. And then we're going to see the response of the whole church and the result for the sake of the gospel. That's good news. It goes forward. It's not derailed. Let's look first at the context and the complaint. It says in verse 1, let me read the text and, and then we'll get into these, the, the context and complaint. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And if we're all honest, when we read that or hear that, that does not sit well with us. It sounds a little uncomfortable. It sounds a little icky, in fact. And they go on in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. 
And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, and other names that you and I cannot pronounce well. A proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. In verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what's the context and the complaint that arose here? In verse 1, it says that in these days, what are these days? He goes on, when the disciples were increasing in number. We've heard how the church is growing exponentially from the very beginning. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 were added to their number that day. In, in Acts 2.47, the Lord added day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 4.4, 4, but many of those who, heard, who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now when it says men, that's referring to households. So it's possible. Some scholars suggest that if you're saying men, then you're saying a man and a wife and at least one child, maybe more, at least 15,000 people that's what's likely added to the church in one fell swoop. In Acts 5.14, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, and it's expanded. It's a multitudes of both men and women. And then in this text, we see that even priests are coming to the Lord. The church is growing exponentially. The gospel is going forth. It is bearing fruit. People are being changed. Disciples are being made. Disciples are multiplying. And that is precisely the problem of this text. That great expansion, that great growth has now outpaced the capacity of the apostles. And that's the problem of this text. Luke says, a complaint arose. The complaint is by the Hellenist against the Hebrews. What I love about Luke, what, what I love about the Holy Spirit riding through Luke, is that he does not allow us to romanticize the early church. Many of us would like to say, and I've heard it said, I wish we could just get back to, to being a New Testament church, get back to being the, the early church. But we've seen they've already dealt with opposition. We've already, they've already dealt with sin in the midst, Ananias and Sapphira. Now they're dealing with this complaint and conflict and disagreement within their, their numbers. And next we're going to see that they deal with severe persecution. So let's be careful for what we wish for. What they're saying here, what Luke is telling us, what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us is the church, the early church, was just like us. It's just like us. Wrestling with the application of the gospel in everyday life. Wrestling with tension and and difficulty, and, and complaints, and, and, and growth, and, and, and struggle, and, and, and insufficient leadership, and insufficient ability, and insufficient capacity, and, and, and those who might serve. And what we're seeing here is Luke will not allow us to romanticize the early church. Instead, we get to see it warts and all. We get to see that it's imperfect. And here we learn about a complaint. Luke shows us the complaint that, the, that arose between the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, who are the Hellenists and who are the Hebrews? These are both Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking, primarily Greek-speaking, Greek-influenced. And the Hebrews were, what you would think, primarily living in Jerusalem. 
If we remember the concentric circles of what Jesus told the disciples, apostles, they'd be witnesses. They'd be witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the other part, uttermost parts of the earth. And what we're learning here is the fact that there are Hellenists complaining that they're even in the story is that the gospel has gone forth beyond Jerusalem to the outer circle, to the, to the concentric circle starting to go into Judea and to Samaria. When we hear the Hellenists, what we need to understand, the, the, the Greek-speaking Jewish believers, they live outside of Jerusalem in the distant suburbs. This is not like Fairhope to Daphne or Fairhope to Spanish Fort. This is like Fairhope to Pensacola or Fairhope to Dolphin Island or to Gulfport. These are believers that are in the distant circles, suburbs of Jerusalem. Primarily Greek-speaking. So there's a geographic distance, a geographic obstacle, there's a language obstacle, and then there's a cultural obstacle. Difference between these two groups. And the complaint is that in the daily distribution, the widows are being neglected and overlooked. Remember in Acts chapter 2 that after the gospel goes forth and 3,000 are added to their midst, that there's this moment when they're all together, it says, unified. They're selling their possessions and they're bringing them to the apostles' feet and the apostles are distributing those to those who had need. They're all together in agreement, devoted to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread together into fellowship and also to sharing their resources so that the needs of others around them are met. And in this moment, there's a particular group that's not, their needs are not being met. The resources are not getting to them, or at least they're not able to get to the resources. And nothing in this text we need to understand suggests that this was intentional, that this is malicious, that there's some kind of ill will here between these two groups of Jewish believers in Jesus, Jesus Christ. It's not malicious, it's not intentional. Instead, what it's rooted in is verse 1. In those days when the disciples were increasing and multiplying exponentially, when the church expanded, when the church grew, it, it outpaced the capacity of the apostles. It outpaced their number, and it outpaced their ability, capacity, to accomplish the needs that needed to be accomplished. Anytime there's rapid growth, those of you that are whether it's family or business, we know when there's rapid growth, it can quickly outpace our capacity. We know families. We have families in our church that have gone from, from one child to having triplets. That severely outpaces your capacity. It changes everything. I mean, you're, you're going from one car that can handle one child to, to, I need to have a minivan, a suburb, and I need to have a bus, Right? We see it in business all the time. Those of you that have been professionals in business, you know that it, it, quick turns in business can result in, in change in policies and change in processes and change in personnel. You have to keep up, and sometimes you're outpaced, and that's what's happening here. It's not malicious or ill will. It's in, in, instead a product of the good news of the gospel going forth and people responding. But the question on the table is, how will the apostles respond? How will the church respond? How would they handle this growth? And what it does, it shows us a legitimate problem, but it raises a greater tension in the text. The greater tension in the text is which is more important, word ministry or mercy ministries? That's the tension that really comes to the, to the apostles and that they're wrestling with in this moment. It, it, which one is more important, 
ministry of the word, proclaiming the word about Christ, Jesus, or ministry of tables. In fact, that's the same word that's used, the same Greek word, diakone, where we get our word for deacons. It's not talking about deacons in this context. It's that word. It's, it's putting those two things together. Serve tables. Serve is that Greek word. Ministry of the word in verse 4 is that Greek word. Which one's more important, apostles? Which one's more important, church? Physical care or spiritual care? Which one's more important, truth or grace? Word ministry or mercy ministries? These are clearly both needs in the church. These are clearly both things that have to be accomplished in the church because of the needs in the church. And they're wrestling in this moment. The enemy would love for them to be distracted in this moment, debating which one's more important. The enemy would love for them to be, for the apostle to be prideful and think, you know what? We've been put in charge and we, we, we will handle it. We will take care of everything. The enemy would love for the, for the larger disciples, larger church to think, you know what? You need to handle it. We'll sit over here. All of, this, all of these things are threats to the gospel going forward and disciples being made. Consider the temptations that they're facing in this moment when this complaint arises. The, the apostles in this moment could easily be tempted to dismiss this complaint, to, to dismiss this mercy ministry, say, hey, you know what, not important. we got bigger things, bigger fish to fry. We've got something far more important. That could be an easy temptation for the apostles in this moment. They could be tempted to mire, the church could be tempted to mire themselves in this endless debate. And this debate, by the way, is not uncommon even today. Which one's more important, discipleship or evangelism? Which one's more important, mercy ministry or word ministry? Which one's more important, serving someone who, who asks and has a need and, and serving them physically or meeting their spiritual needs? This debate is not uncommon, and, and in this moment, it's a threat to the church. And that leads us to our second point in the wise solution that the apostles offer. The apostles initially respond in verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And again, at first glance, that sounds very uncomfortable. It sounds like... What many of us have experienced in real life, arrogant, prideful pastors or leaders who say, that's beneath me. Now, they may not ever say that, but they act that way. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced it either in, in business, in, in, in your profession, whatever that may be, or you've experienced it in the church. And at first glance, it sounds like they're looking down on serving tables as though it's beneath them, or at best, they're trying to get out of something that they're unwilling to do. And I, as we read the context of this, that's just not what they're saying here. That might be the attitude of some leaders, some leaders in the church that, that you've experienced before. That's not the context here, the attitude and disposition of these apostles and their hearts. Let's remember who these apostles are. They were the disciples of Jesus. Let's remember what they did. They walked and talked and followed Jesus. They stayed where he stayed. They heard him teach. They saw him live his life. They saw him die. They saw him buried. They saw him 
raised again. These are the same disciples that walked with Jesus and heard him say that the, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. These are the same disciples that, that on the eve of, of Jesus being crucified were sitting around a table and Jesus took off his outer garments and got down on his knees and washed their feet. And then he said this in John 13, You call me teacher and Lord, king, ruler, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. And then Jesus fulfills that example even further because he is the king of all glory and he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. These disciples walked and talked with Jesus and heard all of that and now in this moment they're saying, service is beneath me. I can't do that. That's so menial. That's so small. I'm, I'm so, more, so much more important than that. I've got so much better things to do. No, that is not what they're saying. Not based on their personal context and not based on the context of the word. What we're hearing in this moment is that the tension of the text between the word ministry and the, and the ministry, mercy ministries, the tension of the text is actually the tension of their hearts. They actually would love and desire to do all of those things and would love to accomplish all of those things, but they say it would not be pleasing to God for us to give up this preaching ministry, the preaching the Word of God. It would not be right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. I think they're saying two things in, in verses 2 down to 4. I think the first thing they're saying is not that they're unwilling to serve, it's that they're incapable of doing all of these service ministries. It's not that they won't do both, it's that they can't do both. I think they're highlighting by their actions, by calling everyone to the table, by what they say, I think they're highlighting the magnitude of ministry is too great. It's too, too, um, too extraordinary. It's too beyond us. I think they're admitting they're being humble in this moment and they're acknowledging we can't do all of this. It's not possible. I think they're confessing we're not Jesus. We can't do it all. We can't be at it all. We can't solve it all. We don't have the wisdom for it all. We don't have the, the capacity to do it all. Therefore, a point. Therefore, call in. Let's Let's multiply our influence. Let's multiply our abilities. Let's multiply further leaders. Why? How do we know they're multiplying? Because they match their same characteristics. Men full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, which is what they're doing in this moment, making a wise decision, full of faith. They're, 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 they're multiplying their influence in this moment. If we think back on that, if, if for example, 5,000 men were added to the church, and that, that's referring to households, then we're talking about 15,000 possible people, and there's 12 apostles. That's 1,250 people to a man to serve, to care for, to meet the needs for, to pastor, to shepherd, to, 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 to talk, to, to counsel, to, to, to remind of truth, to defend, to protect. It's not possible. It's not possible. I think they're admitting that in this moment, in what they're saying here. And I think they're saying something more. I think the second thing they're saying in this moment 
is they're not standing in prideful arrogance, unwilling to serve. I think their primary concern is pleasing God and serving Him. Specifically, by handing over ministry, by relinquishing control of ministry opportunity. And I think that is clear in the text. They say it would not be right. That can literally be translated as it would not please God for us to do this. To do what? It would not please God for us, he said, they, they, they say here, to give up, to relinquish preaching the word about Jesus. Remember their commission and calling and assignment, and they have proclaimed it from the beginning of Acts. Jesus taught us this in the Gospel of Luke, but they were commissioned and called to be witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Who else in this scene, in this room, in this moment, walked and talked with Jesus, heard his instruction, saw him live his life, saw him died, saw him resurrected, and were commissioned and appointed to go be witnesses of those very things. No one in the life of the church at this moment were commissioned to do those things other than these men. And what they're saying is it would not be right for us to give up this assignment, specific assignment that we received from Jesus. Instead, what they say is let us give up mercy ministry and let us give ourselves to the word ministry. Where do you see that in the text, Neil? It's in verse 3 and 4. They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we have appointed, who we will appoint to this duty. The word appoint literally means who we will hand over this duty. Who we will give it up to. We will hand up, hand over, give up this ministry of mercy that, that is important in the life of the church. We will give it up. And then they say, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Devote means, and we will give ourselves. There's an intentional word play in the text here. It's not right that we give up the word ministry. It's better, wiser for us to give up mercy ministries. And we will give ourselves to this word and prayer ministry. And the implication is, if we're giving up this mercy ministry to these seven and to the rest of the church, the implication is they will also give themselves to prayer and to service. That's what they're articulating here in these verses. They're giving up something in order to hand over and give themselves to something else. I think this is so important as we, as we see what they're saying here in this, in this text. They're not making a distinction between right and wrong. They're making a distinction between right and left. And those two things are totally different. They're not saying it would be, it would be right for us to give ourselves to this and wrong for us to give ourselves to that, as though it's, it's, it's wrong and beneath them and menial and to, to get out of it. No, they're, they're saying they're saying. We want to do what pleases God, and now we're trying to make the wisest decision based on that. And the wisest decision based on that is for us to give ourselves to what we've been called, commissioned, assigned to do. The ones who've been witnesses need to continue to proclaim witness, and we need to empower and hand over and give up mercy ministry so it can also be accomplished. And we need to do that with men of like mind. 
I want you to notice several characteristics and implications of what they say. I think it's, there's so many things that are fascinating about what they're doing in this moment. They're not, first of all, they're not dismissing the need, saying it's unimportant, saying it's beneath them and, and, and therefore they have something better to do. No, instead they highlight the need. They draw more eyes and more attention to the need. They call, it says, the full number of disciples together, and they say, hey, listen, this is really important. Everyone, eyes on, hands on, how are we going to accomplish this? They call more attention to the problem, not less. They bring more eyes on it, not less. They highlight, they elevate the need, not less. And I think that's significant. I think another significant characteristic implication of what they're doing here is they did not try to retain power. Instead, they relinquished it. And that is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. You know the human heart. You know your life experience. You know those in positions of authority and power. Do not give up power and authority readily. And here in the early church, these apostles let it go. They don't They don't provide a solution to the problem. They recommend that they they choose seven men and they say, let them handle the problem. Let them lead. Let them solve. And those seven men all have Greek names. They're all Hellenists. They also go and, and find men who are in within those people. They're closest to the problem. They'll know what's best to do in this situation. And they move on. They relinquish power. They hand over They did not fall prey to the temptation to try to do everything. They did not fall prey to the temptation to try to do everything. They did not fall prey to the prideful arrogance of thinking we're the only ones that know what's best in this moment. We're the only ones that know how to solve this problem. We're the only ones that can do this. They did not fall prey to that. I think another characteristic implication here, they didn't give in to the temptation to do everything. Instead, they invited others into the opportunity and the privilege of using their own gifts. They didn't fall prey to to the temptation to do everything themselves. Instead, they invited others into the opportunity and the privilege of using their own gifts. I know that Romans 12 and, and 1 Corinthians 12 and in 1 Peter 4, 10, we're all written after this chronologically, but those three texts, Romans 12, 4 to 6, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7, 1 Peter 4, 10, all describe the heartbeat, motive, understanding of the apostles in this moment. And what do those texts say? They say that we are all members of one body, and there is not one person who's more important than another, not one gift that's more important than the other. Instead, every single person has been gifted by the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ Jesus, to serve the body and for the purposes of this text and the purpose of the gospel to expand and proclaim the gospel and multiply disciples. Every single person is important. There's not one person, not the person standing here, not the person doing this teaching role, not one person's more important than another. Every single gift is unique and important and vital in the body of Christ. Which means they did not choose between mercy ministries and word ministries. They said yes to both. Which one's most important, apostles? Mercy ministries 
or word ministries, physical care or spiritual care? Yes. Yes, that's what they're saying in this text. By not dismissing it, by saying we will do this, you do that, and together we will use our, our gifts, complementary and compatible together, to expand the kingdom of God, proclaim the gospel, and multiply disciples. I think it's extraordinary the criteria by which they make these decisions. They said it's not, it might be right, it might be pleasing. So their first and primary concern is what would please God. With all that you've made me, with all how you've wired me and gifted me and given the experiences that you've provided me, how have you gifted, strengthened, and emboldened me? What have you given me? How would you have me live and breathe and act? What, what would you have me do? What would please you, Heavenly Father? And secondarily to that, what's this wisest decision to make in this moment? If we live by those two criteria, man, what wisdom and, 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 and power would we live by? What would please God with all that he's given and all that he's created me to be? And what's the wisest thing for me to do in this moment, at this time, in this season, with all that he's given me to be and do? That's their concern, and that's what they're trying to do. And I think there's a question, a couple questions we have to ask. How is it possible for these men in positions of authority, in positions of power, having seen Jesus, walked with Jesus, heard Jesus taught, see his life, death, burial, and resurrection, how is it possible for them to give up power? How is that possible that they would be willing to relinquish authority, to relinquish control, to relinquish power to men that did not walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, see Jesus, hear his instruction? How is that possible? How is it possible for them to give this wise counsel in this moment? How is it that they could stay singularly focused on what pleased God and invite others into the opportunity to serve? Because their singular focus was Jesus. Their singular focus was the one who had all power and yet gave it up willingly. The one who empowered them, flawed, failed disciples, to go and be his messengers to the world. Their singular focus, their singular devotion was to a king who humbled himself and died on their behalf. That's why they're willing to do it. That's the motive and the power by which they do it. And they say, let's empower others who have a like mind, who are willing to do the same thing. How is it that they could give this wisdom in this moment? Because they're focused squarely on wisdom himself. The one who is both truth and grace. Who is both the holiness of God and the hope of God. Who is both the justice of God and the joy of God. Who is both the mercy of God and the word of God. They do not choose between the two. They choose both because that's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus does. They didn't get sucked into the debate. Which one's more important? No, both, because that's what Jesus called and commissioned us to do. We just can't do it all. But together we can. We can do all of this together, accomplish all of this together. And that leads to the response and the result, which is also remarkable. Verse 5 tells us the response. It says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Is there ever a time that you've heard one decision make, made in front of a whole host of people, maybe upwards of 15,000, and they all were like, absolutely, 
Best decision ever. That's great. Yes. No, this is a supernatural response in this moment. They are all in agreement, in unity. This is the wisdom of God. This is what would please God. Yes, you give yourselves to that. We will give ourselves to this. Together we will accomplish proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. It says that they please the whole gathering. It literally, that phrase means they were full of joy at this decision. They were full of joy at this decision. It, we get to serve too. We get to jump in too. We get to play the part of setting up a chair. And that chair might be the chair that we will pray over and someone will sit in and hear the gospel for the first time. Yes! Awesome! Can I set up more than one? That's what they're saying in this moment. We get to serve widows. We get to be unseen servants of the gospel of Jesus Christ and more will hear and more will get to know and more disciples will be made. Sign me up. Can I be a part of that? That's what they're admitting. That's what they're confessing. That's what we're seeing in this moment. And look at verse 7. As though we needed anything else. Look at verse 7. It says, and the word of God, the word about Jesus, the word about his life, death, burial, the word about his freedom, the word about his power, the word about his rescue and redemption, the word about his hope, continued to increase. And that word increase, it's so, scholars point to it and they're like, that is such a weird word to put next to the gospel. It means grow organically, like a seed that's been planted and growing into a massive oak tree, the gospel was blooming. The gospel was blossoming. The gospel was expanding. And then it says, And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And why? Because they heard the gospel, but not just heard, they felt the gospel. They felt it in someone putting an arm around them. They felt it in someone serving. They felt it in someone encouraging. They felt it in a hosp- someone being hospitable. They felt it in someone encouraging and, and, and nudging. They felt it in someone giving a meal. They felt it in someone meeting a need financially. They felt it. They heard it and they felt it. Of course, disciples would respond. People would respond and disciples would be made. And then we get the most shocking thing in this whole text. A great many, in in verse 7, the last part, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests. Why do we need that detail? Why are we told that the priests, I mean, why? Why do we need to know that? Why doesn't it just say, like it said in other places, and a great many became obedient to faith? Why is it priests? I think it's two things. One, it's showing us that the concentric circles of the gospel are growing, pulsating, expanding. That it's gone from just 3,000, just 3,000. It's gone to 5,000 men or households. And then it's gone to men and women. And now it's priests. The gospel's going forth. But why, why priests? What's the significance of that? Remember chapter 4. Chapter 4 shows us that it's the priest are the primary opposers of the gospel message about Jesus Christ. Those who are the primary, who who sit in primary opposition to the message of Jesus. The priest, 
the upper echelon of religious leaders who, who are opposed to the message of the, of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now they yield. Now they humble themselves. Now they bow. They say, we're, Jesus is king. And why? Why? Because even the staunchest resistors of the gospel cannot argue with the word of the gospel lived out. They can't argue with lived out gospel when it's proclaimed articulately. They can't, com- they can't, argue. They, they, they can't argue the plausibility of who Jesus is. It, the gospel calls us to, to, to mental understanding, propositional assent of, of certain truth claims about Jesus. Jesus is king. But then it also calls for personal allegiance. Jesus is my king. So you can tell me all day long that Jesus is king, but if you're not living as though Jesus is your king, then you're, com- com- you're, you're completely undermining everything about this message. And what these priests are seeing and hearing are these people not only proclaim something, they live something. They've been gospel transformed. What are we learning in this moment? The whole purpose of the book of Acts. The gospel's going forth. Jesus is continuing to accomplish his mission, his work, through gospel-transformed believers. Before we end, I want to ask this question this way. Let's imagine for a second that the entire narrative of this text ends with verse 2. That we don't get verse 3 through 7. We would read, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. What happens if the text ends there? Then we have those arrogant church leaders who are saying and articulating something's beneath them and they're unwilling to do it and they're trying to get out of it. What happens if it ends there? They ignore, if they ignore and dismiss the complaint, the concern, the needs of the widows. What happens if they don't invite others into the solution? What happens if the apostles try to do everything themselves. What happens if others let them do everything themselves? What happens if the church does not, in, in, in unity, agree to use their gifts in complementary ways for the sake of the gospel? You don't get verse 7. Verse 7 is contingent on verses 2 to 6. Verse 7 is the result of verses 2 six. People living and speaking the gospel. People speaking and living the gospel. For this reason, Paul says in Romans 12, again, we have all been given gifts and all of our gifts are different, but he says, having received different gifts according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And so for that reason, when we were looking at this text months ago and we were thinking, you know, we're going to get to Acts 6 after the new year, and man, what a text. What a text. You know what? Let's, let's bring to everyone's attention once again all of the areas of opportunity that you might be able to serve within this body. And so we want to highlight two, one internal and one external this morning. The internal you heard Brian mention earlier, and that is the areas of of internal ministry and volunteer and serving that you can be a part of and use your gifts and grow as a follower of Christ 
in this room. And there's, there's tables in the back. There's opportunities for you to say, yes, I, I'm all in. I want to do that. I want to serve in that way. And there may be ministries we don't even have yet. Maybe complaints that we haven't even fulfilled yet that you can raise your hand on. And we say, okay, let's work on it. What are you going to do? How do you want to solve it? There's areas of ministry that are internal to the church, hospitality and service and, and areas to ministry to our kids and areas, areas of ministry to, our, to youth and, and to women and to men and that you have the privilege and opportunity to serve the rest of this body for the sake of the gospel and the sake of disciple-making. And so we want to bring that to your attention. After the service, we want you to take time to go and do that. And then there's another area, and it's external. We have a number of external areas of, of ministry we partner with. We, we really rarely try to recreate the wheel here at Mars Hill. Instead, we try to grease the wheels that exist. We try to, to participate in areas of ministry we already have members or ministry connections to. And, and Compassion International is one of those. We have a number of people that are on staff with Compassion International. It's a global ministry organization. We have a number of people that are in our church, this campus and the other campus, that are on staff with Compassion. And we have a number of you and others who, who support Compassion through a number of different ways. And so this morning, we wanted you to hear from one of Compassion's alumni. Edgar, come on up here and, and let's hear from Edgar. Edgar is uh, an alum of the Compassion program. And so, Edgar, I would love for you to share just a little bit about what your life was like before Compassion and then we'll ask some other questions. Absolutely. Thank you. It. Good morning, everyone. Yes, I was born to a single teenage mother in a rural area in the Dominican Republic. And when I was three, four, my mother wanted to pursue better opportunity for the both of us. So she picked me up and we moved to the capital of the Dominican Republic, Santo Domingo. But essentially what happened there is we became homeless upon arriving because nobody had invited us, so we had nobody waiting for us and nobody to welcome us, and meaning not a place where to stay. So for about a year, we were just bouncing from place to place, crashing at distant relatives, uh, acquaintances, people we would just meet in exchange for domestic labor. Uh, and in some cases, unfortunately, we did just not have a place where to stay. So fast forward a year of that, as I said, and then we, or my mother, found a place in the poorest, most dangerous crime-filled neighborhood in Santo Domingo. That's where the poorest of the poor lived. I think we have a photo of that. That was actually my neighborhood. That's where I grew up for in my earlier years. And while we were happy, we finally had something to call home. Uh, my mother was even more stressed out at that time because she now was responsible for paying rent. As bad as that looks, she still had to pay rent for that. And it felt like we were always just a day or two from becoming homeless again as she struggled at the end of every month to pay the rent. So we lived there for a year and then I'm five, ready to be enrolled in elementary school and my mother still unemployed, still going through financial difficulties and a lot of food insecurity and almost homeless at the end of every month, reaches out to my father for financial assistance and my father offers a few coins. And my mother says, this isn't going to be enough. We need more than this for shoes, uniforms, uh, textbooks, etc. My father said, well, if he takes more than a notepad and a pencil, the school is just not for him. Let him grow up, be literate. 
He won't be no, the first one nor the last one. And that saddened my mother, but made it even more determined that she was going to find some help. So she learned about a church not too far away from our neighborhood that had a partnership with this international ministry called Compassion, and they offer uh, sponsorship for children like me. So she took me there, and they had us fill out an application, and uh, they took my photo, and I think we have that there somewhere. There we go. So that was my photo in 1985. And they said, pray for this. We'll send it over to Compassion, and pray that God sends a good sponsor to you. Several weeks later, we received the good news that on a Sunday, a church in Florida hosted a compassion event, just like the one you're having today. And a gentleman attending that church picked up my packet and decided to sponsor me that day. That marked the beginning of me not only being released from poverty, but primarily walking with Christ. That's awesome. That's amazing. So... <clears throat> Tell us more about what, how your life changed as a result of compassion and the ministry that, that offered during that time. You mentioned Christ and you mentioned also poverty, but there was more, I'm sure. It, it, it impacted in a positive way and changed my life in many ways. And you'll come up short guessing the many ways it did. And we will quickly run out of time if I was to try to list them. But I think I can summarize it in a a few key areas that it mainly impacted me. Number one, it was it prevented me from being forced into child labor. That's a huge problem in underdeveloped countries. Still in Dominican Republic, we deal with this a lot. And in my case, since my neighborhood and in the back of the neighborhood was the city dump, that was the main source of employment. So young children will go there to dig up scrap metal or anything they could find there to resell uh, to help their families. And the saddest part of that was that some of these children wouldn't come home at the end of the day because they will get run over by a bulldozer or even worse, they will get assaulted by another adult if they found gold or another precious metal. Wow. So instead of heading into that dangerous situation, I was placed in the Compassion Center, with, in the safety of that center, where I was uh, learning how to read and write, and I was learning about Christ. Number two, the program supported me from kindergarten all the way up to my senior year of high school, and uh, provided everything that I needed to successfully complete um, my great education and set the path for me to become the first one in my family to ever attend and graduate from college. Wow. Number three, um, having a college education opened doors for me to work in first multinational corporations in Dominican Republic and then to eventually receive offers to relocate to the U.S. and work for several Fortune 100 companies would not only allow me to provide uh, for my family and, and for my relatives in need in Dominican Republic, but also to be generous with uh, other causes as well. And number four, the most important one, all the other ones would have been meaningless without this one, is it brought the gospel to me, trained me to be a disciple of Christ. But in addition to me, also my mother um, accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior, 
and so did my grandmother, my brother, several of my aunts, uh, many of my neighbors, many of my friends, and, and many of my other relatives as well became believers as a result of the sponsorship. And ultimately, my father reconnected with us after many years. He acknowledged his wrongdoing. He asked for forgiveness. He surrendered his life to Christ. And today, he is a prominent evangelist in Dominican Republic that has founded ministries, planted many churches, and literally brought thousands of people to Christ. Wow. So. That's awesome. We talked in the first service. You are a tangible example of this, of this text. You had your physical needs met and the gospel also presented to you, both and... And even the priest of your own home, the father, was saved, and you, he ultimately has been influential. That's amazing. Uh, so how has your life changed since then? You, you mentioned a little bit about that, uh, and, and through that sponsor that, that connected with you through sponsoring you. Absolutely. God has blessed me abundantly in ways that I could have not even imagined before. Uh, number one, he's blessed me with a great family. My wife and I, we are off to a great start uh, initiating our family. We already have five children. Initiating, okay. I mean, that's a way to grow the church. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Totally in control of that. Yes, and we invest all the energy and resources we can to ensure that our children are faithful disciples of Christ as well, that they love God and they love God's creation as well. We serve our local church. We serve compassion and other ministry uh, with our time, with our talents and treasures, even sacrificially at times. Professionally, never would have thought that a fatherless kid from the slums of the Dominican Republic would one day become a senior leader at a Fortune 100 company where at times I've been responsible for managing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of technology projects and having people under my hundreds of people under my leadership. Nothing special that I have done that has just been the grace of God that has been able to place me in, in, that, in places of honor uh, to show what he can do. That's amazing. Yes, absolutely. And one of the greatest blessings of my life is now being on the other side of the equation. If it was a big blessing for me to have been sponsored through Compassion, I have found that it is at least equally rewarding to now be a sponsor. These five faces that you see here, those are the children that my wife and I sponsor. Three of them in my native Dominican Republic, of course, I have to be biased about that. <laughs> and one of them is in El Salvador, and my adorable middle child there is from Haiti. Uh, and it excites me because I was once there, and when I read their letters, they replicate the same letters that I used to write to my sponsor. And when I send them letters telling them, I love you, I know that it is likely the first time that they have ever been told, I love you, just like it happened with me when my sponsor will write me letters and say, I love you. Wow. And you mentioned, I don't know, we have a table in the back, and they can sponsor today if they're interested, and it's $43 a, a month, and, and you have a sponsor do that same thing for you? Yes. Uh, my sponsor had 
was the most influential person in my early and teenage years, and I had such a great level of gratitude and appreciation for him. And upon graduating from the program, I went on to um, college, to start a family, career, etc. There was in the back of my mind always my desire to uh, one day meet him and tell him face to face, hey, this is the outcome of your investment. Thank wow. you for allowing God to use you as a tool uh, for that to happen. And it happened. In 2019, I found him in Florida, wow. uh, and we reconnected, and we have been together ever since then. We have a very close relationship. In fact, we were here not too long ago watching uh, a game in Alabama, in the Alabama football game versus LSU, and that was a lot of fun. So, yes, uh, it, it is a remarkable thing to read these letters and to send these letters and knowing that you are having a profound impact in their life just through letters. It's amazing. We want to encourage you to consider this. We wanted you to hear from Edgar as an alum of the program. There is a table in the back and you can, you can find out more. He'll be back there as well and you can ask him some questions if you have any questions uh, for him and get to know him a, a little bit better. Uh, I want to pray for Edgar and pray for us and then Mark's going to come and share with us some, some other things that are going on in the life of the church. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, your word that is so powerful. We sometimes can read it as, as theoretical and distant and, and, and unrelated to us, but we are seeing tangible a tangible example this morning of the very text we just studied uh, of min ministries of the word and ministries of mercy meeting and how they meet in Jesus, and how we can play a part. Lord, I pray that you would take this text and move it from the head down to the heart and out to our hands. Uh, maybe that service internally in the church, maybe that service externally through other ministries like Compassion International. Uh, I pray that we would give serious thought and serious pause to the privilege and opportunity that you've given each of us and the gifts that you've given us and how we can play a part in the word going forth and disciples being made. Thank you for Edgar and his story and what you have done in his life and the testimony of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.